0: hello everyone and welcome back to the streaming science podcast Streaming Science is a student-driven program that works to connect you with scientists to learn how science impacts all of us and our everyday lives. I'm Ashley Jansen, a third-year agricultural education and communication minor at the University of Florida, and I will be your hostess. You're currently listening to an episode from our series titled AI in Action, where we explore scientists' current research and how AI is changing the nature of science. AI development is said to be the fourth industrial revolution. The research explored in this series spans disciplines from data science to health to cybersecurity to agriculture and more. AI is used with crops, cattle, pesticides, citrus, pigs, and more to increase efficiency and data accessibility. The following episode was made in partnership with the University of Florida Department of Agricultural Education and Communication, UF-IFAS Dean of Research Office, and UF's AI Strategic Initiative. In the following interview, I spoke with Dr. Zach Siders, who is an accomplished quantitative ecologist and research scientist for the University of Florida, looking to solve natural science puzzles through his research in ecological hierarchy, distribution models, and the application of integrated models for priority species. We discuss his work with NOAA to research marine bycatch, distribution models he's been developing, and what he thinks of AI bringing about this fourth industrial revolution. Dr. Siders is truly passionate about his work. Through this podcast, I hope you gain insight into Zach's research, the role of AI in science, and an overall sense of how scientists are moving forward to create new and unique solutions to address current global issues. Also, a disclaimer to our listeners, due to the pandemic, these interviews were recorded on Zoom. I apologize for any audio issues. We hope you enjoyed the episode hey how's it going really happy to have you here thank you so much for coming on so why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about your academic background kind of your undergrad graduate programs and kind of how you got started in all of this
1: sure yeah so i got my undergrad at UNC Wilmington in North Carolina, and I got a bachelor's in biology and chemistry. And so I kind of right off the gate was very interested in how I can borrow from lots of different disciplines, which kind of eventually led me into AI when I did my master's at Wilmington as well. Um, I was working on basking sharks for my master's, which are the second largest fish in the ocean. Um, And They're really cool. They migrate like 3,000 kilometers a year um, from basically the temporal temperate north uh, all the way down to the Caribbean. And so we were really really interested interested in figuring out where they like to hang out in their summer feeding grounds up in Canada. And so as part of that, we had access to 20 years of survey data on where basking sharks like to hang out in the Bay of Fundy. Uh, which is basically just off the coast of of Maine between the Canadian provinces of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. And it's the world's largest tides. Uh, And so the basking sharks like to go there and eat on calanid copepods. So in doing so, uh, we got really interested in, well... The Bay of Fundy also happens to be this major shipping lane and shipping port, and so if we could get ideas of where basking sharks like to hang out, maybe we can help tell people where basking sharks are and not hit them with their giant cargo vessels. And so that's kind of how I got into AI is is through species distribution modeling and and in ecology and fisheries, uh, where I'm wow. at now is really heavily involved in these kind of species distribution model approaches and machine learning and and how they come about. And the one that I originally got involved in was maximum entropy, which is very popular species distribution model approach. That is a machine learning approach. Um, And it works really well in the case of when we have um, presence data. So we only know where the species is, but not where it isn't. So we'd have no idea where the absences are, which is the case from our surveys for basking sharks is basically a whale watch person who was interested in science, kept track of where she saw basking sharks for 20 years. And so she only had where they were and not where they weren't. Um, And so enter maximum entropy. So that's how I got started in in AI. And then I I did a bunch of distribution modeling work for uh, my PhD here at the University of Florida. And then kind of in my postdoc, I jumped back into heavily species distribution model work with Red Snapper and used Random forests, which is another machine learning approach. And then that led me into the Pacific, which is where I'm at now, working as a research scientist um, through the University of Florida, but working with the the NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, their science centers out there. And I do a lot of distribution modeling almost all entirely in AI machine learning.
0: That's awesome. When you first in got introduced to AI, what was your initial reaction to having to kind of play around with
1: it? Oh, uh, this is magic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so the Maxent was really funny at the time. At Maxim entropy, we call Maxent for short. Uh, was really funny. It had a Java GUI, which basically you open up this little thing on your computer, you know, you're download downloaded from the internet and, and then you click on it and it has a bunch of like point and click, you know, load your map and load your CSV file of all your points. And, and then you kind of press click a bunch of things and hit run. And it produces these absolutely ridiculously looking like heat maps of where the species is and things like that. And the thing that Maxent's particularly well known for is that it is by default, fits very specific models. So you basically get these like really fine scale, like, oh my God, this is the most intricate map ever. How did it, how did it come up with this thing? So you get these beautiful maps as the default stuff. So when you run them, they very much look like magic. Now that's not the best way to run the model, but it, by, by default, that's kind of what they come out. So that's, yeah, that was my first experience was I actually went up to Duke University where they had done um, some maximum entropy work on minke whales in the Antarctic. And they, so they had some expertise already applying this AI stuff. So I went up there and hauled my computer with all my data up there. And we, we spent a couple of days messing around with, with Basking shark stuff. And in the end, it ended up being a really good approach. And I got published back in 2013 or something like that was the distribution model of Basking Sharks and the Bay Funding. So
0: Okay. So definitely AI has come a long way since, you know, 2013. That's a little bit. <laughs> yeah. What do you think has like increased the demand for it within your field?
1: Um, so kind of in, in fisheries in general, we see that AI is really showing up in quite a few different places. You have a lot of the kind of things that we see a lot of development in, which is, is kind of in the image and video analysis stuff that we see a lot of applications coming about, um, in terms of applying AI that has, come about huge in fisheries. We have a lot of data that we collect in particular camera surveys have become very, very frequent. So in the Gulf of Mexico alone, there's camera surveys run out of Florida, Mississippi, Texas, all across the Gulf looking at reef fish. And so if you have to sit in front of your computer and click on every single reef fish that every single video ever sees to score it, that's a boatload of work, especially when, you know, you can record lot of it over time. Um, And that's kind of how I originally kind of got back into AI was I was mucking about with this in my degree because I had actually collected a bunch of camera surveys on freshwater lakes, freshwater fish communities. Um, And so I was trying to figure out if AI developing kind of AI for what I needed was going to be worth the time um, because they do take a lot of time to, to kind of train and build those data sets. And then the reality was for me it didn't what it didn't pan out as a, a good time investment. Um, but we definitely see that in fisheries overall is image image analyses and you see a lot of people trying to do it for uh, like observer data, which is where someone sits on a boat and enumerates all the catch that comes on board. If we can put a camera there and the camera can count all the things that come on board, then that allows us to deploy it on more fishing boats and the, these sort of things. Um, the other way that we see it is, is and the way you see it across ecologies, is species distribution models still. We're okay. still very much out of, involved. In that. Um,
0: out of those aspects like which one do you think is maybe you know the most important within your field or you know the one that's most valuable that
1: maybe you've used mm. the most? So the one that I use use the most is definitely species distribution models for sure. Um, I mean, uh, I wrote my own, uh, which was was one of the the things that we did called Ensemble Random Forest to do species distribution model in the case where we have really, really rare data. Uh, Very, very few presences, so where the species is and a lot of where we don't. Um, And a lot of classical um, kind of distribution models don't do very well in this instance. That was where we we built Ensemble Random Forest for. But probably as a field, I would say it's going to be this image analysis stuff that we see a whole boatload of development. And like the NVIDIA program here coming to UF is a big component of where we see people doing that stuff. I think probably the biggest challenge for those sort of things is you need something to do it on, right? So you need some sort of video that's been correctly classified and characterized and all that sort of stuff. And the way that we've traditionally done this... On our, on our end on the data collection side doesn't necessarily mean it's very applicable for what you're gonna see needed for an AI to train off of. So there's some burden and some some overhead that has to be done just to get our data sets more like that. There's some really cool people who've been working on this all across the world. There was a really good um, group who was working on this in Australia for, for kind of estuarine fish and they had really good performance. Um, way back in my master's, I sat in a talk that was using neural networks on trying to do this on reef and trying to figure that whole thing out. Um, and they were like immensely frustrated was the back end of their whole talk was like, this is a nightmare, but it's gotten a lot better since then. <laughs> so I think they, you know, it's, it's, we definitely see it show up a lot. And in fact, there's a many millions of dollars invested on the, on the federal side to figure out how to do this for observer programs in particular. The other main issue that is a problem is all the data that I work with is confidentiality. So it can't very readily be ported over to Hypergator without violating a bunch of federal laws. Um, So that's another big issue is working working with those folks to get it ported over to systems that are more very, very secure because we we can't even, I can't send the data to anyone. I'm, I'm the only one allowed. I actually can't show people maps most of the time. It's like, Hold on. I need to look at something on my computer. Don't look at this sort of thing.
0: What makes it like so confidential?
1: Um, It's protected information on where fishermen fish, which is probably the most guarded thing about fishermen information. They don't like giving that away. In particular, the groups that I work with in Hawaii, there's actually very few boats. So in some of the fleets, there's only like maybe 10 vessels that go out in a given year. So there's a lot of competition. And a lot of, they don't want to give away that protected information. So
0: So currently, I guess, um, what's your most current project, kind of what have you been up to right now?
1: Yeah. So the, the current one is kind of coming off the heels of us developing ensemble random forest, um, for rare species. And the biggest thing that we've been doing is applying that to 139 different species of marine mammals, marine birds, marine reptiles, sea turtles, um, in layman speak, sharks, and a whole boatload of fish. And what that allows us to do is by making maps of where species are caught by these fisheries out in the ocean is we're able to kind of understand where, when is this occurring, which the Pacific is huge. So being able to identify specific areas is a, is a big win in our case um, because it's a massive kind of data black hole that we've been able to fill in. The other main thing that we've been able to do is now we can start overlaying all those maps. And so we can start playing some games of like, okay, where are, species, where are different species over the time, over the whole year? Um, where are the fishery interacting with those species? species. Are there any places that we can maybe have the fishery avoid for whatever we want to implement that and maybe protect multiple species? Maybe we do really good by saying, don't go here and you won't catch all these different sea turtles and things like that. And the real impetus for this is in the 90s, basically a bunch of these pelagic fisheries, post-World War II, all these pelagic fisheries basically develop around the world. the 90s they kind of come to fruition they've matured they're fully developed um and they actually absolutely dominate and hit a whole bunch of protected species or at that time weren't really protected species but things we really cared about albatrosses sea turtles dolphins whales things like that um and so a whole bunch of these fisheries got shut down or completely retooled or um, and in the case of hawaii they basically we completely redid the fishery. Basically everything that we could possibly do to fix the fishery and prevent them from doing this, we did. And we were really, really successful at it. We basically stopped them from catching 90 to 95% of what they were catching before, which is a massive win. I mean, you have to applaud the fishermen and NOAA and everyone involved and all the NGOs who pushed for a lot of this stuff. They did that, but we still have 5%. And the question is for some of these things, Five percent might be too much so what do we do and we're kind of left with the hard things because we basically did everything on changing gears or changing how they deploy that gear or even some of the basic rules and and you know for instance swordfish fisheries used to fish at the surface with like squid bait which i don't know for some reason is like catnip for albatrosses and so they basically go after it um so now they fish at night with glow sticks and all i mean there's a whole litany of things that they do to make this better, but they still catch seabirds and they still catch turtles. Very, very few of them, which is why we had to build an algorithm to predict where they were catching them, Um, but they still catch them. And so we're left with really hard things of like, well, maybe we don't go to some places or we're going to go to those places. So that's where we can use and combine all the different applications of the AI together to basically try to address these really big, massive management questions. And just to give you a scale, I mean, in here, in here in Florida, we're talking, you know, most of our fishery problems are like the Gulf of Mexico. We're talking about a fishery that is 10 times the Gulf of Mexico in spatial scale. So we're talking, and and that's one of them. We work with three, one of which is, 15 times to 20 times the size of the Gulf of Mexico in terms of what part of the world. We're talking about almost the entire Pacific. So roll the globe over and basically the whole Pacific minus maybe the Arctic and Antarctica is the purview of these, these AI algorithms that we're applying. So the application's huge and it's addressing massive questions for a variety of different fisheries and, and protected species.
0: Wow. That's really amazing. Just like the work that you're doing and it's, it's clearly having a really large impact. Have you had any challenges within it? I know there's probably been a bunch of different aspects, but I guess like working with NOAA and also working with the fishermen, what has been kind of like the dynamic between all these different organizations?
1: So I have to say, it's like, it's, it's pretty amazing because you have to think of like how this data got collected, right? It's like a fisherman goes to the ocean for three weeks and sets a 10 mile long set of hooks along line as we call them. There's, I believe, if I remember, this is off the top of my head, but about 18,000 hooks on this 10 miles in the ocean. All right. And they're setting about 13 or so, 13 to 18 sets of so 10 miles long each over their whole three weeks of their trip. And we put NOAA, not me, we know we in the global, we, NOAA puts an observer on board um, and they monitor every single thing that comes off those 18,000 hooks per every single set, per every trip. And the, the coverage varies. So, you know, some fleets are 30% have of trips have an observer on them. Some of the fleets I work with have hundred percent due to the kind of historic issues with seabirds and things like that. But that's just, I mean, this is a massive amount of work. Just a massive amount of work. And you have to kind of acknowledge how much of a Herculean effort it is to get all that different data from all those different people across the whole Pacific all together into a database that then I can go and play with. So I have I, like uh, that dynamic am, is amazing. Like I didn't have to do that work. Thank you for all of them. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't right have to.
0: Right, that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a nightmare.
1: Um, but between like kind of the, the agency, um, you know, NOAA. There's kind of two sides of it. We have the science center side of it, and then we have a regional office, which are the actual managers. So they're the ones who are kind of have to make decisions on what is managed, how it's managed, based off of legal rules, right? They have to make it based on the laws. Um, So Endangered Species Act, Mags and Stevens, which governs fisheries. Um, so they have, and, you know, clean water, clean air, all those sort of things. So they have to juggle a whole bunch of laws on the managing side. And the scientists kind of get to like, you know, answer the fun questions like, well, what is, what's going on here? How do we, what, what's the impact? Um, and they're all kind of them along with the fishermen's and NGOs and environmental groups and and private citizens to come all together kind of in this this fisheries management council where they're kind of the arbiter between all these groups and synthesis and integration of all the scientific advice along with, you know, weighting the various interest in in the natural resource and the fisheries. And so by and large in the Pacific, it's amazing because they're really, really talk to each other a lot. They work really well with one another. Um, I've been approached by, you know, the kind of industry, fishery industry, like in groups, and basically being like, hey, we want to be proactive. Do you have recommendations based off of your analyses to, that we can apply? And so we, one of the things we saw was we did kind of an analysis that, that wasn't AI driven, but used some Bayesian analysis um, to look at different ways that sharks are uh, survive after they're interacting with the fleet, which we call discards in fisheries. Um, so they're thrown overboard. Generally, they're alive um, by and large. And we basically looked at how they can improve how well they survive after they're interacting with the fishery. And, and out of those analysis, the, the industry came to us and was like, hey, can you tell me how good of a win it's going to be if we swap from steel leaders to mono leaders, which is basically the end of the, the line? Where the hook is tied to and based on our analysis they swapped over to mono monofilament leaders completely which is a boat I mean, again 10 mile <laughs> 10 miles of line yeah. out the ocean they're over mo- many many boats so they're changing all the ends of every single one of those lines and it will take a while for them to do it all but yeah they basically said yeah it's a win for us it helps prevent sharks from from dying after we interact with them we're willing to do it and so it's really it's really positive to see those interactions and in a really stark contrast to what we kind of see is the usual mode in the gulf of mexico which is a lot of a lot of people at crossroads with one another
0: did that kind of come as a shock to you that you know they were so willing to work with you guys because i feel like the narrative when it gets to the big fisheries industries, you know, all fishermen, they don't care about the turtles. They don't care about what they're catching, but in this situation they want to help and they know that it's in their best interest to help because if they can practice more safely, then they're going to be able to stick around a lot longer.
1: For sure. And, and, you know, honestly, I think, I think it's a really great place to talk about it's in our interest too, because, you know, on the, on the protected species side, you know, we care about a single sea turtle, but on the sustainable fishery side, right? We want these fisheries to still remain operational. so you have these kind of different values and in terms of how we we measure what their impact is. But the reality is that, that, you know, we're all the U.S. U.S. flagged fleet is 10% of the effort occurring in the Pacific. So 90% is from other countries. And I can tell you, they do not do nearly the amount of stuff that we do. To protect protected species and and to prevent bycatch and increase their survival and basically everything that, that we've talked about so far and so if we if we choose and that's a perfectly reasonable thing but if we somehow decided that well a sea turtle every single turtle matters and we don't want the fleet to operate anymore well it doesn't prevent sea turtles from being killed in fact it's probably going to create a much much worse problem because we're going to have people who do not care about sea turtles move into our area and take over that and now we're buying tuna and swordfish and things like that from people who do not care versus right now we have a lot more control over that and you know we have a lot of really good people who are interacting with one another to try to keep that operational and sustainable for a long time and you know we've done a lot of population analyses on these sea turtles and you know evaluated What's the risk that the fishing does and in the interactions and the bycatch are to these sea turtle populations? and it's very minimal. So I think by and large you can say they've done a really great job and now we're kind of at the bottom trying to like eke out the scraps of like what's the how can we prevent just what whatever's left in terms of the bycatch that we have remaining?
0: Wow, well, I guess kind of one of the last things I want to touch on is just you know why is this research you know so important to you? I guess like tell me a little bit about kind of your passion with this because I know, it seems as though you're very, very passionate about this and it's something that you truly do care about.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think, I think I straddle the line of that value is, you know, I really like, I, as we call them almost disdainfully in, in fisheries, like charismatic megafauna is the word that we use, but it's, you know, everything that's, you know, on a World Wildlife Fund poster, sort of stuff—the sharks, the birds, the turtles. I like—I mean, I like working. You know, I did my masters on sharks. I have a—you know—I have a passion for those sort of species, and I always found it really interesting and really difficult. That as a human who operates almost on two dimensions, two dimensions at any given time, like thinking about three dimensions and how they you interact with the three-dimensional environment is much more challenging and and, and difficult to kind of think about how we would do that and. And how these species operate over massive timescales. I mean, humans are a blip compared to some of these these species. You know, the some of the basking sharks have been around for 35 million years. I mean, that's half the time to the dino, the last dinosaur sort yeah. of stuff. So it's, you know, the fact that they've been around and, and gone through way, way more things than humans ever have in terms of climate change and massive, you know, tectonic movements in the, in the entire world. Um, it's pretty cool. And I I like that sort of stuff. But on the other hand, I like solving puzzles. And I think, you know, fisheries has a lot of really amazing, interesting puzzles to do and the data to match, which I think is is a really useful part. And so when we think about AI, you know, we think a lot of times about like, you know, self-driving cars and things like that, and they're able to capture billions of data points. And I think this puzzle is really interesting where we have a lot of data and we're kind of at this point where it's like, AI could be really useful for some of these things, but also is like, we're not quite in, you know, self-driving car territory and the data collection side of things. And we can't just drive a LIDAR down the street and capture all that information. We have to like go and do it and pay someone to sit on a boat and cap you know count every turtle and tuna sort of stuff. And I think having that kind of, respect for how the sampling does. And I've done a bunch of field work, so I, I know that it's hard. It's not easy to to capture this information. It gives me I would like to think it gives me a lot of respect for how the, the data was collected and putting it to really good use. And, you know, being able to provide people with information is a really useful thing to see out of your research and, and get that applied approach. And I think, you know, here at UF, we have a lot of, you know, a lot of students who are really involved in the application side of things. And I think they're, interested in that because we want to see something come out of it. We does not want to make the research for research sake. We want to see it go right. somewhere. And I'm very much in the same same boat.
0: Yeah. I feel like at UF, like everybody has that common goal of like, we do want to see something come out of it and we do want to make a difference. I feel like no matter where you go at UF, you're going to find somebody that, you know, we want to have some sort of impact with what we're doing, which I think is very important.
1: Well, and I think, and I think it's really important when we think about what the future is too. It's like, I mean, I think younger generations than I are are more and more invested in in making sure that that what they're doing has a lot of purpose. And so I think, you know, it's, it's nice to see that we have a lot of AI stuff coming into play because it's pretty application driven for the most part. There's not a lot of kind of pie in the sky sort of things happening on the AI stuff because it is, it is a lot to overcome to make it, make it happen. So,
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for everything. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to the AI in Action series on the Streaming Science Podcast. Make sure to follow and reach out to us on Facebook at Streaming Science, Twitter at Streaming Sci, and Instagram at Students Streaming Science. I'm your host, Ashley Jansen. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit the links in the show notes.